Hello, and welcome to Fatal Femmes, a podcast surrounding the women of mystery. Each episode will focus on a mystery, suspense, or thriller written by or made famous by a female-identifying artist. We're your hosts, Laura Celeste and Lacey Kenny-Gonzalez. Stay tuned. In this episode, we will talk about the 2014 book, The Secret Place by Edgar Award winner Lee It is the fifth book in the Dublin Murder Squad series and was named one of the top five murder mysteries of 2014. We want to caution you that this episode is full of spoilers. We go in depth on every aspect of the plot, so if you care about that, go read the book and then come back. We'll be waiting. To start us off, here's the synopsis of the book. When the body of 15-year-old Chris Harper is found on the grounds of St. Kilda's, a posh all-girls boarding school in Dublin, there is immense pressure on rookie detective Antoinette Conway to solve the case. But a year later, they are no closer to finding the killer, until one of the girls from the school shows up at Dublin Castle with a new clue that could be the key to everything. For those who don't know, Dublin Castle is the headquarters of the Ireland Police Force. Good to know. So this was your first of her books to read. Yeah. Even though it's the fifth one in the series. Are you shaming me? No, I'm not shaming you. It's the first one that I read. I felt that tone seemed pointed. The reason that I read this one first is because it was the first one that I could find on audio and I wanted to listen to it because of the Irish accents. Well, to be fair, I would have never heard of this book had you not read this book. So as far as I'm concerned, this is the first book in the Dublin Murder Squad. It is one of those series where you don't have to read them in order because each of the books focuses on a different detective. We did meet Detective Stephen Moran in an earlier book, Faithful Place, but this is the first one that features him as a main character. So we start off with Detective Stephen Moran. Yeah, we're introduced to him at the very beginning of the book. He is a detective in Dublin, obviously. I think we've established that. In cold cases, he is looking to make the transition to the murder squad. The big leagues. Everybody wants to be in murder. That's where he wants to end up. But he's been stuck in cold cases for a while, and he's afraid that he might never get a chance to move up because of some things that happened in the book Faithful Place. Which I know nothing about, so... And I'm not going to spoil for anybody (laughs) who wants to read Faithful Place because... Secret Place is my number one favorite book of hers, and Faithful Place is my second, so I highly recommend you read that one. Well, and stay tuned. It might be a future episode. So we meet Detective Moran in cold cases, wanting to make that jump to murder, the murder unit. He talks about biding his time, waiting for the opportunity to present present itself so that he can use that to start that transition because of extenuating circumstances from the previous book that Laura mentioned he feels that this might not be as easy this might be easier said than done so while he's sitting here just you know having a regular old day he gets a call that there is a young girl waiting for him in one of the incident rooms and she will only talk to him no one else this is holly mackey she's a character that we also met in the book faithful place and that her and moran have some they have a, a bond of friendship yes because of this other case that they were involved with she was much younger in the other book yeah she was much younger she was eight or nine she's now 15 so she comes to him with this postcard that she found on this bulletin board in her school the bulletin board is called the secret place it is a place where girls can hang up anonymous secrets you're not supposed to be able to know who they were from or who they're about 
It kind of reminds me of the app. I think it's called Whispered, and you can literally post anything. It's completely anonymous, and then you can go through and read all of these secrets that people left. And some of them are really messed up. But so that's basically the concept, is that the girls in this boarding school have a way to show off their secrets. Well, the postcard that she brings has a picture of this kid on it, Chris Harper, and underneath it, it says, I know who killed Chris Harper. Because basically what it comes down to is it this this postcard, this picture with I know who killed Chris Harper is harkening back to a murder that took place at St. Hilda's the year before. And it is unsolved. So she's bringing forth this information that someone has posted on the secret place. She's bringing it to Moran because this is the only detectives that she trusts. Jumping ahead just a little bit forward. Holly's dad is also a detective. He is an undercover. So she is familiar with the procedures in a police department. And she knows what they might try to, to do to extract more information. She doesn't trust the system. So she's going to this person that she has a relationship with to give him this information. Guess what? This is his big chance. Yep. He finally has something that he can take to murder. So he looks up who the lead detective is on the case and it is Antoinette Conway. She is the only woman on the murder squad. This was her first case, a very high profile case that did not get solved. And so this is a really bad mark on her. She has a really bad time fitting in because she's a woman. One of the things that is said about her is that the only reason she's on the murder squad is because the chief who is called the gaffer needed to check some minority boxes and she checked two of them yes because conway is both a woman and also not white yeah it doesn't address it in this book but in trespasser it lends that her father might have been iranian yeah middle eastern she talks about having darker skin and dark hair Mm -hmm. so she very much doesn't look like the you know stereotypical pasty irish person which moran is (laughs) i'm like me (laughs) so she has a lot of things kind of going against her she has this big case looming over her she also has very obvious tensions in this unit of which she is completely by herself she's completely isolated she also has rumors being spread about her that i think it addressed in another book as well that basically allude that she's quote-unquote a ball buster out for herself will throw someone under the bus to further her own agenda solving this case for her when moran presents it to her presents this evidence to her would be a big win it would be something that would establish her in this in the squad even though she has no reason to establish herself it's very clear that she works very hard but in the eyes of the other detectives that give her a hard time it would be be something to keep them from hassling her one thing that i really love about her she's never talked about as any of the stereotypes that you think of like they never talk about her being feminine or masculine or anything like that no she wears high heels i think high heel boots they're like a high heel boot yeah and you know form-fitting suits but she loves cars and she picks the fastest nicest car to drive they have this cool thing which i don't know that american detectives have but they have like a motor pool where they go and they pick out different cars to drive to the cases and things so they can just it's like a -a rent-a-car thing they can just go pick the car they want to drive yeah that's what it seems like because they've mentioned it before 
Okay. Which that's really interesting. Yeah, and the, I, I appreciate that about Tana's writing is that Conway is a woman who is a detective, but they don't make her a woman detective. They don't, she has all of these things writing against her in the eyes of everyone else, in the eyes of her male counterparts, but she never addresses it. She doesn't talk about it. She just does her job. It's not something where they're trying to make her out like this person that's overcoming so much adversity or that she's a victim. She is a detective and she's doing her job and she's not asking anybody for anything special. And I really appreciated that because so many times when it's a woman in a quote unquote man's job or a non-white person amongst white people, they try to put these labels on them and try to make them fit this narrative. And with this, it's very much Conway is her own person and is focused on the job and that's who she is and everything else about her is is unique to her it's like she may wear heels but she drive she likes to drive cars or she may be tough but it never it she never fits that mold that either oh she's a girly girl or she's this tomboy or she's a ball buster she she's a woman in a male-dominated force she's a person yeah oh my gosh a woman's a person jeez i had no idea but she wrote her like she would write, like everybody writes male characters. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't go, oh, it's a guy cop. Whereas mm-hmm. if you see a female cop, you go, oh, it's a female cop. It's a lady cop. Moran is a detective who's a man. Mm-hmm. Conway is a detective who's a woman. Yeah. That label there, detective, defines them before their gender does. Yes. And both of them, not just, I love that so much. Well, and I appreciate about... Moran's character is I think he does acknowledge these things like she's a woman or she is a person of color but he doesn't treat her differently it's it's very much like you said it's they are detectives that's the first and foremost thing that they are so it is a detective speaking to another detective. Yeah, and he always treats her like the lead detective. Like, this is his in. He doesn't try to flirt with her, or there's no romance, or will they, won't they, or anything like Nothing that. Nothing like that. He's just purely trying to show his skill to get on her good side, and maybe she'll help him get to murder. Yes, and also he never tries to undermine her or step on her toes. He, Like you said, he lets her take the lead. Or it's not even lets her take the lead. He knows his place and he stays in it. He understands his position Mm -hmm. that she is the detective on this case. She's the lead detective on this case. And it's never an issue. Right. It's never an issue. As the same it would be in a story where the lead detective was a man. He treats her the exact same way. And that is so refreshing. And it's, as we're sitting here talking about this, I'm really realizing how crazy it is that we're sitting here talking going, wow, he's treating her like an equal, a person. (laughs) And that's so refreshing. Oh, sad times. Blowing. Hopefully this is a trend that will continue. Yeah, very much so. But there's a lot of, I hate to use the word strong female themes, but it's more just women finding their power, their power in mm-hmm. this book. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why I picked this one out of the series for us to talk about. Yeah, there are a lot of, of themes about women finding their own strength and it's not women are better or women are this or that. It's just, it is equality. Because overall, the kids in this from both the boys and the girls boarding schools, they're all pretty terrible. Yeah, they're they're all little shits. So it's not like, oh, the girls are perfect and doing all the right things. And the no. boys are little dogs. It's like, they're all 
they're all making mistakes and acting like really awful teenagers. Which is what teenagers do. They're all terrible. If that's the one takeaway from this book, that's what it is. Teenagers are terrible. Thanks for listening. (laughs) So going back to the relationship, the introduction of Moran and Conway, because of these extenuating circumstances in the department that she's in, she is immediately kind of looking at Moran with a distrust because I think she immediately sizes him up. I think most people in the department, just from how the book reads, know that Moran wants to make the move to murder. So I think she looks at it as here's this guy coming in with information on my case, acting like the nice guy, acting like we're going to work together, but then he's going to try and take it over and take take the credit so he can make that jump. He fully sees the opportunity and what he has in front of him because he has this girl that he has a relationship with. He has this unsolved case and he has the lead detective who really needs a win, who really needs this murder solved. So he presents this information and himself as an asset. You can use me. I, I have a relationship with this girl to solve this case. The way that he's coming at it is very smart in my opinion. He never mentions his wants because I don't think he has to. Everyone knows. He presents it as an opportunity for her as this is this is an asset for her to get this thing solved. She sees that because she's not an idiot and she takes him up on it. But the whole time she has an eye on him. She's watching him to make sure that when he does step out of line or when he does try to come for her position or undermine her, she's ready to cut him down. Right. So we go to the school. This is where Tana French's writing really stands out to me. In the description of the school and of the other exterior places around the school that we learn about later in the book. But she paints such a clear vision of this school and the grandeur of it as they drive up the road and see it. She described the architecture in such a way that I needed to go and look up a couple of the words to see what that style looked like. But the second I saw it, I was like, oh my gosh, I, I saw the school perfectly. It was a, It's attributed completely to her writing. Her writing is beautiful. That's mm-hmm. one of the things that I love so much about her books is she paints a picture and you clearly see everything. Yes. One thing that you told me before, you saw each character Mm -hmm. completely. You knew exactly what they looked like. Yeah, I could cast that show. I know what they look like. And I just love the way she draws you into the world Mm -hmm. without being too wordy. She doesn't use 14 different words to describe something. She paints you the picture and then she moves on to something else. But you really get captured in it and it feels like you're living there. It's engrossing. All right, so we get to the school, and they have a meeting with the headmistress, and then we jump right into the questioning of the two different groups of girls that we cut to know very well. The headmistress is not happy about any of this, and it is all done very begrudgingly and with a lot of, like, underhanded threats from both Conway and Moran that if they don't get to do this, then there's going to be police descending on the school. So I just think that that's kind of setting the, setting the scene a little bit because they have a timeline. They've got to get this done today. Yeah, the whole book takes place in one day. Which is crazy because so much happens. So much happens. But it is one day. Well, there's flashbacks, mm-hmm. but from where we start to the solving of the case, 
is one day. We meet the two groups of girls, um, the Daleks, which are Joanne, Orla, Gemma, and Allison. They're kind of a, the popular group. I yeah, guess. they're the popular girls, popular with boys. Joanne's the leader, Orla's the dumb one. <laughs> Gemma's the sexy one, and Allison. I don't. What, Allison, what function does Allison serve? The the most accurate description of Allison is timid and afraid of everything, and I relate to that. <laughs> no, but I think Joanne. They try to make her kind of as a knockoff Regina George. She wants to be Regina George. She just isn't Regina George. But damn it, she's going to pretend that she is. Fake it till you make it. And so they interview this group first. They don't get much from them. No, they get a, they get some information and tidbits, but I think what this part of the book really showcases is Moran's ability to be a chameleon in the interrogation room because each one of these girls responds to kind of a different style, a different approach to interrogation. He is able to completely size up a girl within seconds and respond accordingly and I found that so fascinating because I don't think typical people like you or I on the street could look at someone and size them up that quickly but he had their number oh definitely if one of them needed him to be like the big brother then he could do that or like Gemma wanted somebody to appreciate her to flirt with her yeah Um, And Joanne wanted somebody to treat her like she was the queen. So he did that to all of them. He was the groveling peasant. And an important note to make is that Conway is in the room the whole time, but she is letting Moran take the lead for two reasons that I've observed. One is that she's already been to this school and interrogated all of these girls and they know her. And I don't think any of them like her because she is not there to be like, she's not there to make friends. And also too, I think she's seeing what Moran can do because she's going to go, okay, if you're presenting yourself as an asset, let's see how good of an asset you are. So go. She's, yeah, she's definitely testing him. And then also these girls are 15 and 16 years old. And sometimes, even though Moran's not described as good looking or anything like that, sometimes teenage girls will respond differently to male attention, which is disgusting. Yes. We all know those girls. (laughs) Then we meet Holly's group. Holly, Julia, Selena, and Becca. I think this group is a little bit different because with the Daleks, Joanne is the obvious leader. She tells everyone else what to do and they are all her little foot soldiers and the peasants that she barks orders at. With this group, however, it's a much more united front. I would say out of this group, the two girls that stand out to me would be Holly and Julia as the leaders because they both are confident leaders and they both have leadership skills. They approach it differently, but it's very much like a captain and his lieutenant where there is not much difference in rank at all and they very much talk with each other and are on the level with each other, whereas they'll handle the other two with kid gloves. And of course, these two groups hate each other. Oh, yes. For reasons that we will disclose later. Actually, right now might be the perfect time because whilst all of this is happening, these chapters are broken up. So the questioning is broken up. And in between the interrogations of each group are flashback chapters where we see all the events leading up to Chris Harper's murder. In these flashbacks, we start to see why the Daleks hate Holly Matthews' group so much. Part of it is to do with the fact that they don't really want to play the games that the Daleks are playing. These girls have 
made a vow that they will not date any of the boys from the nearby boys' boarding school because Julia made out with one of them. He told some lies about her. This guy sent some pictures. And so they got fed up with the whole thing. They were tired of being judged just for their bodies. As objects. And so they said, we're not going to date them. They're tired of trying to please not only the boys, but the girls as well, because the girls will pick on them even more so than the boys will. Because if you're not wearing the right lip gloss or your hair isn't blonde or straight, girls like the Daleks are coming for them. They don't want to cater to that mindset. They want to do their own thing. They want to have fun and they don't want to worry about fitting someone else's idea of what they should be. So they make this vow. They swear on it. Off all boys, no boys. I don't think they do a blood pact, but it's basically that serious. It's that intense. Because of this, they somehow tap into this hidden power. It's the supernatural element that still I don't quite understand. I attribute it to them discovering their power, their own strength, and maybe that's just kind of a manifestation. If it's real or not, I, I don't know. I think in the world of the book it is. And they discover this when they start sneaking out of the school at night, which of course is forbidden. They find a way to sneak out of the school. They go to this beautiful cypress grove where they just sit and talk. And sometimes they don't even talk at all. They just are with each other. And through that, they discover that they have these abilities that they can make things move or make little sparks with their fingers. And it's just all very innocent and fun and very whimsical because in the very beginning, when these girls discover that they don't want to play these games that the girl that these other girls are playing, you very much are rooting for them because it's the mindset that we as women, as older women now, w- wished our younger selves had. Oh, definitely. So it's heartening to see girls at this age making the discovery that they don't have to play anyone else's games, that they can just have fun and do things that they enjoy and be themselves. They can turn lights on and off by opening and closing their hand. I think they make something hot at one point. Yeah. Just little things. Little cute tricks, if you will. And one of the reasons I think this happens is because it makes everything so much more... It makes it real and there's consequences. Mm -hmm. Because if you make a vow, okay, cool, whatever. No big deal if you break it. Okay, maybe your friends are mad at you for a little while and then they get over. But this is something different. This is some force that they can feel, that they know... If they break this vow, something's going to happen. The vow almost services as a fifth member of the group. Yeah, it does. Because it's the thing that connects all of them in such an intense, ferocious manner. And ultimately is what causes the downfall of everything. Yeah, but more on that later. So this is the most supernatural of her books. She always puts a little something in there, Mm -hmm. but in other ones, it's either barely noticeable or just somebody having like a strong connection. Mm -hmm. But this is the first one that I've read that actually has, you know, powers and there's a lot of talk about ghosts. Mm -hmm. I have to ask you, how many books of hers have you read? See, I've read... Faithful Place, Broken Harbor, Secret Place, and I'm reading Trespasser now. So I've read four of the six. Okay, do the characters that are endowed with these gifts, if you will, are they women? Is it women and men or just women? Can you 
it feels very much like tapping into like the magic or the power of oneself. Now that I think about it, because in Broken Harbor, it's the mom and the sister they share who have this thing. That's an interesting question. I'll have to keep an eye out for that from now on. Yeah, I mean, and it really doesn't matter the gender. That really doesn't matter. Is it speaking to women finding their power or is it just a person finding their power? Just something to think about. Things start to go awry with the Valentine's dance. Of course, the girls have become targets for the Daleks because they're doing their own thing. They, Becca wears jeans to a dance. Oh my gosh, she wears jeans to a dance. And from the description in the books, they all dance like you. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I read that I was like, this sounds like when Laura dances and just with wild abandon. Yeah, it's, it's pretty terrible. I, I, I would venture to say miraculous, but agree to disagree. I like miraculous. Okay. Miraculously terrible? So, but the guys also notice this. Oh, yeah, for sure. Because a girl being independent and doing her own thing, what? They're, like, very confused by it. They think that they're really weird, but at the same time, they're all very intrigued. Oh, yeah. And so they end up being the only ones that actually really get to sneak out Mm -hmm. with some of the boys. Yeah, because Julia meets... Ben Carroll, and they have a really cute back and forth, and it's really adorable. Just from the book itself, I'm gonna say it's faded. It's a faded little affair. In the beginning, beginning, it's very cute, very innocent. And so, yeah, they do sneak out just to go have a chat because they talk about how terrible the dance is. Ben and Julia meet and go off to talk, and then that's when we discover and, and they've talked about this in the dis, in the interrogations and questioning the girls they've discovered that selena had a relationship with chris harper and this is when we get to see that first meeting between them and something happens when he touches her it grounds both of them mm-hmm. it like sends a shock through her body or something they become kind of addicted to that feeling they want to feel they're that they're very drawn to each other but of course this vow Julia can't have anything with Finn, and Selena can't have anything with Chris, even mm-hmm. though both sets really like each other. Well, the girls can sneak out, and Finn fixes a way for the boys to sneak out. So Selena and Chris start meeting up. Mm-hmm. Nobody knows anything at this point, except Joanne finds out. Yes. And Joanne had been secretly dating Chris, but he broke up with her, and she thought they were going to get married and live happily ever after. So she's less than pleased to find out that Selena is now secretly dating him. Yeah, I think you could call her upset. She is able to capture a video, a picture, something proving that Chris Harper and Selena are meeting up. She shows it to Julia because Julia will not believe her. She's like, you are full of crap. This is not happening. So she shows Julia this video and basically tells her to end it. And the best way Julia can think of to do this is not to talk to Selena and say, hey, this is what's going on, blah, 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 is to text Chris from the secret phone he gave Selena, arrange a meetup. Well, before that, she, because don't Selena and Chris break up? Yeah, they break up. Does Selena break up with Chris, or does Julia break Chris and Selena up? Selena knows that she's violated the vow, so she breaks up with Chris because she knows something bad is going to happen. Yeah, despite them being completely infatuated with each other. They have, at this point, broken up. We're jumping back and forth a little bit, but I think we're following the story as best as we can. They're broken up. Chris is heartbroken. Selena is too, but Chris is dealing with it in a different way, which is texting Selena 
all the time trying to figure out what happened. Julia, because of Joanne, finds out about this phone because Joanne also had a phone because Chris was kind of a scallywag. He was a player, one might say. A player? That, that, that would be the way that we say it. A rich player because he would he bought secret phones in bulk and gave one to every girl that he was seeing. No, he, he had many. They all talk about in the book, in the chapters, when it's from Selena's perspective, and even from Moran's perspective when he's discovering this relationship between the two of them, that it's not typical. It's much different. That it changes him, it changes her, and they are completely eyes only for each other. Julia finds the secret phone and text Chris. And speaking of Finn, Julia didn't believe Joanne when she said that Selena was sneaking out to see Chris. She had a bet with Finn that she could actually get out and she took a picture under the clock on the school grounds. Well, Finn figured out how to get out too and he took the same picture and showed it to her. When she saw that, she said, wait, you guys can get out? And he said, yes. Only thing on her mind was trying to figure out if this thing with Selena could actually be happening. So she asked him, can Chris Harper get out? Which, of course, Finn immediately assumed that she wasn't interested in him. She only wanted to meet up with Chris. So he got really mad and never spoke to her again. The whole relationship fizzled and she did it all because she's trying to figure out if her friend is meeting a boy. But doesn't even bother to ask her friend. Yeah. That's the whole thing. And this this is, the, this is the other takeaway. Besides teenagers are terrible, communication is key. Because all she had to do was explain to Finn and explain to Selena, like, what was happening. And a lot of stuff could probably have been cleared up. But this vow kept them from talking to each other. Because yeah. they all knew something was up. Holly knew that Selena was acting weird. Julia knew that Selena was acting weird. Mm -hmm. Becca knew that something was up, but nobody ever talked to Becca because they didn't think she could handle anything. Yeah, Becca was very much viewed as this naive young girl that was growing up but kind of unaware of it and was still in her la-la land of being young and not a teenager. So they were just like, let's just not bother her with any of this because she can't handle it. Well, she also would get upset yes. if she thought anything was wrong in the group. So they were just like, we don't tell Becca anything because she'll just get upset. Julia decides the best way to stop this relationship between Chris and Selena is to start sleeping with Chris. That part of the book really bugged me. I'm not angry that she wrote it. It's just, it's the mindset that Julia had. It was the only way to save my friend is to sabotage my own relationship and... Give herself up? Yeah, it was very self-sacrificial because she didn't want to do it. She didn't want to do it at all, but she was doing it because she thought if she was sleeping with Chris, he would leave Selena alone and she could get over him. Because if not, Joanne was going to tell that they were getting out and get them all expelled. Basically, she offered herself up to keep all of that from happening, which just just the thinking about these girls being 15 or 16 and, and thinking that or doing that just ugh, just makes me feel gross. Again, they could have solved a lot of problems if they just talked to each other. This is why we didn't get in trouble when we were younger. Yeah, because we talked about everything. everything. We told our parents everything. Yeah. Also, we were homeschooled and didn't go to a boarding school, but... Maybe our homeschool was like a boarding school. That's true. We Maybe it left. was. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. 
but the boarding schools are such a different world. Mm-hmm. I don't even think I've been to a week-long camp. No. So I can't imagine what it's like if you're just stuck with these same people. Because it's not even like work where you go work with them and then you go home. You have school with them. You eat with them. Your free time is with them. You sleep in the same room as them. Yeah, you're just... You spend more time with those people than you do your actual family. Yeah. I can't imagine the psychological toll that takes or, like, what that creates. Because even with your family, even when you're a kid, if you go to public school or private school, you go to school all day, you're away from your siblings, your Mm -hmm. parents, you see them at night. You have breaks. They literally are together all the time. Maybe they're extracurricular activities, but... But even that... Yeah, I mean, if, if you're both in, you know, band or drama or whatever. Well, they talk about it in the book. It's like they're in class together, they eat together, they are in the same rooms together. And on the weekends, if they don't go home, which most of the girls don't want to go home, especially the girls in Holly's group, they all want to be together all the time. They go down to, like, the little teen hangout, which is like this open-air mall. So the kids are together all the time. What does that breed? Very intense result, as the book will show. Well, and they can't get away from Joanne and her group either. Yeah. So you're with the people you like and the people you don't like all literally the all the time. So getting back to the book, Julia makes the decision that she is going to offer herself up to Chris. He takes her up because maybe he wasn't such a great guy after all. But I mean, no, don't make excuses for him because if he if he really loves Selena that much, the thought of sleeping with another girl wouldn't that's true. Appeal to him. Or he, it might appeal to him, then he'd go, no, I love this girl. He, he doesn't get a free pass. Well, I mean, technically him and Selena were broke. They were on a break. It's <laughs> <laughs> Ross and Rachel all over again. Oh, God. Yeah, don't make excuses, because he, he didn't have to do that. That is very true. Because part of me wants to do that, but I'm like, you know what? I'm done making excuses for men. Yeah. Even if they're the teenage variety. Yeah, because I'm not making excuses for Julia. No, we're... We are like, why Why would you do this? There was no reason for that. Same, Same should apply to him. Yeah. No free passes. I don't care that he died. <laughs> I'm just kidding. So we're at the point where Holly has become our main suspect. Yes. Between these alternating chapters of flashbacks, which the flashbacks take over quite a bit. There is a lot of interrogation, but the interrogation is more slow moving than the flashbacks. Eventually, yes, the all eyes land on Holly as the main suspect because it's the one person that Moran did not and would not consider and still doesn't consider, but all roads are pointing to her. She's also the one they consider smart enough to cover her tracks yes. to stump the police for this long. Yeah, because she knows the ins and outs. Her dad's a cop. She could figure it out. Because not just because her dad's a cop, but she's smart, she's cunning, and her dad's a cop. They call in her dad, Frank Mackey, because at this point she is a suspect, and so they have to have proper adult supervision, and if they got a teacher and it got back to him that they didn't contact him, there would be a lot of hell to pay. Both knowing that this is going to adversely affect their the proceedings, they call in Mackey, who walks in, big chipper smile on his face, and just at ease as can be, but everyone can read under the surface that he is a shark in the water. He's waiting. He's waiting for someone to make a move. It's all very calculated, and his demeanor is part of that calculation. He has a past with Moran from Faithful Place, 
and he uses this information to try to play Conway and Moran against each other. Yes. Because we find out later, he starts to think that Holly might have actually done it. Yeah, so his primary objective in all of this is to get his daughter out of that school. Which I can't imagine as a parent, I mean, let alone a cop, thinking that your kid might have actually committed this murder. Oh yeah, because it's one thing to have a, a parent that thinks your kid killed someone, but then to have someone equipped with the tools to defend their kid, or that seen stuff like this happen, where your mind must go, because he immediately must go into planning. Okay, this is my first step. Like, I may not know what I'm doing after this, but I know right now I need to get her out of here. So everything he's doing is to get his kid out away from the police. He does play Moran and Conway against each other. He tells Conway some things that happened with Moran from Faithful Place, or I guess for him a few years ago, because his life's not a book. And then um, he tells Moran these things about Conway, that she has thrown partners under the bus, that she has only looked out for herself and that she's not going to look out for him. It looks like he has dissolved what turns out to be a really great partnership between the two of them because as they go through these interrogations, you start seeing this rapport and this relationship build because they start realizing what good detectives each other are. And they play off of each other well. They bounce ideas around, but they don't end up with dead ends. One idea leads to another idea. They're able to kind of understand a shorthand even though they've only been working together for for five, hours. six hours. That was one thing I really loved. I love the fact that both of them came into this. It's like, look, we're with each other for a day and then we're going our separate ways. So let's just do this as painlessly as possible. But in the process of doing that, they click. And while neither one is each other's ideal partner, they become a great team. And it looks like Mackie has torn them apart because he get he takes each one of them out individually And when he gets back with Moran, Conway kicks him out of the interrogation room. And so it's Mackie, Holly, and Conway, and Moran's on the outs. So he thinks he's blown it. So he gets all pouty and starts wandering around the grounds. And Joanne spots him and calls him over. Which you know is going to be very dangerous. A man being alone with a group of teenage girls. And it's dark at this point, too. Yes. He has to be careful. They have to be careful, but yet they're teenage girls and they don't. They're not thinking about the repercussions. They're just. They're not thinking about that at all. They're not thinking about being careful. He's the one that's just like, uh, I don't know if I should do this. It's basically like a fish swimming into shark infested waters. He does it anyway, and this is when they get the clue that they need. That clue is that Becca was seen around the tool shed the night of Chris's murder. And one fact that I don't think that we've talked about is Chris was murdered with a shovel. With a shovel in the, the Cypress Grove. Sounds like we're playing a game of Clue. It was so-and-so it, with a shovel in the Grove. They thought that Becca was down there to buy drugs from, they call him groundskeeper Willie, <laughs> who ends up getting arrested and fired. For selling drugs. Which is what I mean. He, that, that, that's, the, yeah. Yeah, so they thought Becca was down there to buy drugs, and that was their big, like, oh, she's not such a Miss Goody Goody after all. She bought drugs. (laughs) And then going back a little bit, because it does flash back and forth, so it's not hard to follow in the book conversationally. It's a little bit like, wait, let me go back. So we find out, you the reader find out, that Becca is the murderer before Moran and Conway do. 
you're watching them with Holly and Mackie trying to figure out what's going on when you know Holly had nothing to do with it. What we find out is that Becca somehow finds the phone and and texts the person. She doesn't know who it is, but she knows whoever this person is has infiltrated the group and is trying to break them apart, is trying to hurt her friend. So she texts them and say, meet me. And the thing is, is they it's very different language because Conway and Moran both pick up on that in the text messages, lots of text messages. She arrives at the Grove with this scarily unwavering resolve. Whoever comes out of those shadows has to be dealt with and it's gonna be a very permanent solution. She has to do this to appease whatever this force. Yeah, whatever force is behind this vow. There has to be a sacrifice to it. Which is so scary. But this is why I talk about the vow being almost a fifth character, a fifth member of this group, is because it holds such power. And because of this, she understands in her warped little mind that what she has to do is eliminate the the threat by any means necessary. She doesn't know who she's going to kill. She just knows she's killing someone. She knows that this is going to happen, whoever it is. So the chapter where she's waiting out in the grove for the person, they don't describe the murder. They don't go into depth detail about like what actually takes place. You just know she kills Chris because it ends with her seeing him. But I think she's almost happy it's him. She's happy it's him, even though she liked him. Because a sacrifice can't be... Giving up something that you hate isn't a sacrifice. sacrifice. So the fact that she actually kind of liked him, not not in like a boyfriend-girlfriend way, but as a person. Because he was kind to her once. Mm -hmm. This is the right kind of sacrifice. Yeah, so she's happy that it's him, but it's... Becca's got some problems. Yeah, she does. She, she she likes her friends a little bit too much. Well, every time they snuck out, she gave herself a tattoo of a blue dot. Yeah. With a pin and a bottle of ink. Yeah, she'd take a little uh, needle or a pin from a pin yeah. cushion, prick herself, and then fill it in with ink. So she had all these little dots on her stomach every excursion that they had at night and she'd do this in her bed while her roommates were sleeping so yeah the obsession ran deep it's a little hardcore (laughs) yeah she could be in a cult oh yeah she could i don't know if she'd start a cult but she would definitely be its most ardent follower she would be the one girl from kimmy schmidt that could never stop being in cults oh yeah she just keep finding a new cult once moran and conway get this clue about becca their focus shifts but Holly, all the, all the while, is in another room. But while their focus is shifting, she's making the realization that their focus is shifting. And she realizes that it's Becca. So she runs out trying to find her friend to stop her from talking. Because she knows that all they have to do is get her talking for a second and they'll have her. Conway and Moran are looking for her. They find her in the grove. I believe, is Selena with her? Selena's with her. So, and this whole time... We haven't really touched on Selena head in the clouds. She is not on planet Earth. She is not listening. She's very much in her own world. The reason for this is because she keeps seeing Chris's ghost and she thinks that he's there for her and that if she can just try hard enough, she'll be able to reach him. Reach him. I don't know if she's talking to him or what she wants, but she'll be able to... Feeling that connection again. Yeah, connect with his spirit in some way. 
And also, other girls see Chris Harper's ghost. We talked about this a little bit earlier. But they see his ghost, and one actually claims that he touches her arm, and it leaves a burned handprint in her arm. And that's a whole ruckus that happens during interrogations further back in the book um, that mistress headmistress McKenna is very quick to cover up. And then in the girls' common room, they see the ghosts, and everybody freaks out, and every single girl there thinks that Chris is there for her. Yeah, everyone's just a little bit guilty because all, there was only one murderer, but there are plenty of people that did wrong things. So everyone's feeling the guilt. Well, and like you said, there's a group mindset here where yeah. if everybody else is saying they saw the ghost, you don't want to be the only one person who's like, oh, excuse me, I didn't see him. Yeah, you don't want to be the caddy uh, Herod in the mirror going, I have really bad breath in the morning. You want to fit in. So, yeah, there is that mentality of, I want to see the ghost too, even though I don't see the ghost, because I just want these kids to like me. Like in Joanne's group, Gemma said that she's not convinced that she saw the ghost, and Joanne freaks out and goes, excuse me, are you saying that I didn't see him because I did see him? And Gemma has to be like, no, no, I'm just saying that I'm not sure I saw him. Oh, it's Backtrack Betty. <laughs> but yeah, so it's much e easier just to say you saw the damn ghost. <laughs> Going forward, Selena is convinced she can see his ghost. And she spends every waking moment trying to connect with him. Because since his murder, she has not been okay. Because she did love him and was completely infatuated with him. Did not want to break up with him. She is just kind of tormented. She's always in a state of just trying to find something she can't grasp. And again, never talked about it. Never. They never talked to her, said, oh, we know that you and Chris were dating. She never once said, hey guys, I broke our vow. I was dating Chris and Sorry. I'm really sad. <laughs> they just all completely ignored it. So no, there's no comfort from it. No one gets comfort. They're all together. They're all in a group. They're all united together. But there is such a wedge between all of them because no one's saying what's really going on. Their friendship is already dissolving because they can't turn to each other for for this so they can't turn to each other for anything, really. But their resolve to stay together is so strong that they still are defending each other and they still have this protective mentality over each other. It's really interesting because it really, truly, as the book goes on, like their friendship really isn't the same and they aren't as close and they are drifting apart. And they all realize it, but yet there's still this very tight-knit click. It's like being together and separate all at once. Yeah. Very sad. Conway, Moran... Mackie, Holly. Becca confesses. Becca confesses. Selena and Julia are there too. Becca confesses, says what's really going on. So she is taken into custody and the murder is solved. From what I remember, we jump back because we go back to another flashback. I believe it's during summer break. Holly knows something's wrong with her group. Something is keeping them all separate, but she doesn't know what it is. She's at home talking with her dad about college and, you know, just life things, like things that a 15 or 16 year old is just starting to kind of think about it's like you have no idea what life has for you it's kind of one of these talks where it's talking about the rest of her life but she's not really concerned about it. it's just she's more concerned about her friends and her mom comes in and her mom also went to St. Kilda's she's talking about meeting up with her friends that she was so close with in school and they had this bond and they just they were inseparable and then after school they all 
went their separate ways. And so two of the girls meet up, one being Holly's mom and one is her friend. But then there's another one that they completely lost track of. They don't know where she is. So it kind of, it's like one of the most moving parts of the book for me, I guess just looking at it as a 30 year old, what the mom is saying is so true. It's like these diehard friendships and best friends forever. And you can't imagine your life without them. And it doesn't matter what you do, as long as you're with your friends, it's okay. But then eventually real life takes over and the friendships kind of are left by the wayside. That really hits a nerve in Holly. And this is when you discover that she's the one that made the postcard of Chris. All this time, she never suspected anyone in her friend group. She thought it was Joanne. She thought, if I can just get this murder solved, we can go back to normal. It was Holly that made the postcard and took it to the station. And we see all the steps of her, how carefully she planned it. It took her months to do it Mm -hmm. and to find the right time. And she even tacks it up on the board and stands there and gasps like she saw it for the first time just in case somebody happened to see her i mean she plays it through step by step this girl is so smart she's awesome and it's like she had the best intentions and it's so sad i mean obviously becca needs help it's so sad because all of her intentions when she did this was to bring her friend group back together and unfortunately that's not going to be possible So you really don't know what happens to the friend group after Becca's arrest. You don't know if if Selena and Julia and Holly are the same. Kind of ends on a very poignant, bittersweet note because all of this was so avoidable. But it was ultimately Holly trying to bring her friends back together that ultimately separated them. You look like you're going to cry. No, I'm not. I'm just really good at talking. Okay. So, did you figure it out? Did I figure it out? Well, at first I thought I was, I felt so bad for Orla because the way that she's described in this book is so, for lack of a better word, it's pathetic. Like, she just, little girl does not have anything going for her. She's basically just Joanne's henchman. (laughs) I was really hoping it was her because I was like, at least she could be a murderer. At least she could have this hidden rage. But she, she wasn't. And it, it was it was the Orla of the Holly group. <laughs> Not that Becca was Orla, but just the the very unassuming one that you yeah. never would suspect. I did, however, catch on later. There was a time when Julia goes, oh, we don't worry, Becca, with any of this because it would just upset her. And that immediately made a light go off in my head thinking that that might be her. See, at first I thought it was Becca, but then as the story went on, I was like, oh, no, it can't be Becca. I didn't have any reason that I thought it was Becca I think except for the fact that she seemed like the most most unlikely but then it was like oh no no it can't be Becca but looking back she's the most obvious now she was tattooing herself and like the poster that hung they talk about the poster that hung above her bed it's this long intense quote about friendship and now I'm kind of questioning myself on why I didn't pick up on it sooner yeah I didn't think she was smart enough to do it just like Orla definitely wasn't smart enough to do it. Justice for Orla. (laughs) Poor Orla. I feel like Orla, but I'd definitely be the Becca. We are all Orla. Except I don't think I'd kill anybody. No, that leads into my question. Who do you feel? You feel like you'd be Becca? I am probably a Becca Orla with maybe a little bit of Julia thrown in. I'm a Becca Orla. (laughs) Because if nobody's making decisions, then I feel like... I kind of go into Julia mode and it's like, we gotta, we gotta do this. If nobody's making a decision, then I have to make people make a decision. I'm very much the same way. I agree with you on that. But otherwise, yeah, I'm, 
I'm a Becca. I could see you. Minus the murderer. I could see you being Holly, because you're very smart. Because Holly, I honestly kind of pictured her as you, like, with your hair when you were younger. If no one knew Lara when she was 15, she had very long, beautiful, curly hair that I wanted to cut off her head and put on mine, because I had straight hair. I didn't know that she wanted my hair. But anyways, that is beside the point. But I always kind of thought Holly had some, or you had some Holly traits. So maybe like a Holly Becca Orla. My first child, Holly Becca Laura. Orla. <laughs> you can't even say your kid's name. I can't name. even say my child's name. Okay, so who are you? <laughs> well, I think I agree with you. I think I have Julia tendencies to where if someone's not making a decision, I will be the one to make the decision. And I definitely am the one to keep things together. I don't know if you agree or disagree with that. Don't hurt me. I see you as a Julia Joanne. Well, that's what I was about to say. I'm like, if we're going to go opposites, like if we're going to go at like my real personality and my inner saboteur, I would say Joanne would be that girl because if I fully have a bad day, I can lean in full tilt to that insecure, bitchy, plastic kind of chick. I I think as I've gotten older, I've gotten better at kind of silencing her and embracing the the more Julia side of me. But the only thing with Julia is I would talk. Even at that age, I would talk to my friends. You wouldn't have just gone and been like, here, take my body. Yeah, no. I'm like, this is mine. I got to fill it with Cheetos. <laughs> <laughs> this is mine. No, you, because you're a fixer too. So you would have been like, guys, we got to talk. Well, that's what, that's the part that I identified. Cause she was very much a fixer. She just went about it a really wrong way. Yeah. But I would, I would say Julia, Das and Joanne on a bad day. Maybe a little Holly if I'm feeling confident. And I think we all have a little Becca Orla. I love how Becca Orla is like the new character. So do you think you will read any of her other books? Honestly, after talking about it more so, I think I will. I kind of want to know the story in The Faithful Place. Trespasser sounds really interesting. So I think I will. I really appreciate what Tana French is doing with her writing. Yeah, I will. Trespasser is from Conway's point of view, and it's really good so far. Well, that is a big sell for me because I really love her character in this book. And I'm really excited. She has a new book coming out in October. Isn't it called The Witching Elm or The Witch's Elm? It's called The Witch Elm. The Witch Elm. And it's a standalone book. But I've heard a little bit from somebody who got an advanced copy, and basically the plot is that this guy inherits some property and he finds a skeleton buried under a tree. Fun. So he's not a detective, but we get to see some of the detectives while they're questioning him. So it's not from the detective's point of view like all her other books are. It's from the other person's point of view, and we see the detectives from the outside. It's from the civilian's point of view. So I'm really excited about that. It's her first standalone, because so far everything else she's written is in the Dublin Murder Squad series. That means you don't need bookends. That's a standalone? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And thank you, everyone. This is my last episode. Um, I'm also really excited because the BBC is adapting the Dublin (gasps) Murder Squad. They're doing, so far, they are writing and pre-production for the first two books. In the Woods and The Likeness, which I haven't read yet. Oh my gosh. But they're going to do The Secret Place, you think? I think they're planning on adapting all of them. Oh my gosh. And I do have to say, this this is another tangent, but the BBC's adaptations of books are some of my favorites because they really pay attention. They don't just slap some shit together and call it an adaptation like Americans can do. Poldark, anyone? Oh my god. Hi everyone, welcome to this episode of Poldark's 
new podcast. <laughs> so moving on, what is your recommendation taking off the secret place? What recommendation do you have for our listeners? I had a really hard time with this recommendation because I can't think of anything that's like her. Right. It's it's very much its own thing and it, there isn't much that you can compare it to. Yeah. Their character and plot driven. They're dark but not too dark. They're supernatural. I just I can't say how much I love her books because it's so much. You should go to Ireland and read her. Oh, dreams. Dreams. Hashtag dreams. Ton of French. Fly us over. Anyway, so the thing that I read recently kind of feels in the same vein. I'm going to recommend Into the Water by Paula Hawkins. It is, it's set in a small English town where there is a drowning pool that over the centuries has been used to try to test if women were witches. Okay, because I was really confused on the concept of what a drowning pool was. It was like, were these things that people just had in their houses? Oh, no, no. And this is my drowning pool. <laughs> this is my garden tub and my drowning pool. And my swimming pool. And my swimming pool. No. So it's this, it's this natural body of water that the town is built on this river. And the drowning pool is a suicide spot. It was used to test if women were witches. And, you know, because if you sink, you're not a witch, but you die. So, you know, you're oh not my... a witch. I would have been murdered so quick because I float like a fish. The fish That's float. true. You're a witch. Oh, well, I never denied it. So there's a lot of mystery surrounding this drowning pool. And this woman has been obsessed with it her entire life, and she's writing a book about it, and she winds up in the drowning pool. So the story is told from several different perspectives. It's the story of her sister, her daughter, the local detective, and the woman in town who is a psychic. So you've got your supernatural element, you've got your mystery You've got strong female presence, and it's really intriguing and creepy, and it kept me it kept me going. You'll recognize Paula Hawkins' name. She wrote Girl on a Train. Oh, okay. I thought the name sounded familiar. Which I really liked as well, so she does the different perspectives really well, which was an aspect of this book. Well, it sounds like you did a really good job finding something similar. I did not. <laughs> what I'm going to recommend is not a mystery. I think it could be characterized as a thriller. It's a film. Some of you might be familiar with it. It's called Heathers. And it tells the story of Veronica and the Heathers. And it's in high school. And there's cliques. And there's murder. And there's intrigue. And it just really plays into those clique dynamics of they're these group of girls and they run everything and they're the power and in comes this other girl who's an outsider but somehow she gets into the the power group so it just kind of plays on girl dynamics girl politics especially in high school and there's also a boy who messes everything up yeah like they often do they yeah. do yeah and a 7-eleven there that's not in the secret place but but it's important. They have Slurpees. So I'm going to throw one more in as kind of a extra credit bonus recommendation. And playing off of the male-female detective that works really well. And you don't have to worry about if they're going to start dating or anything like that. Because I really hate that. Is the, you hate love. I recommend the series Broadchurch starring David Tennant and Olivia Coleman, Who is going to be playing Queen Elizabeth in the new season of The Queen. And I will fully endorse that recommendation because that is a great series. 
three seasons, amazing mysteries, strong characters, David Tennant. Yeah. Okay, guys, we'll see you in two weeks with our next episode. So here is a clue for our next episode. Think carefully. Everything after this moment will not only determine your career, but life. You can spend it in a corporate office, drafting contracts, and hitting on chubby paralegals for f- before finally putting a gun in your mouth. Or you can join my firm and become someone you actually like. So decide. Do you want the job or not? Thank you for listening to this episode of Fatal Films. To keep up with us, please follow us on Twitter at Fatal underscore Films. Have a suggestion or comment for the show? Shoot us an email at fatalfilmspodcast at gmail.com. We hope you enjoyed today's episode because it's